Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We're in part four of a series entitled Marriage and Sexuality, and today we're talking about marriage and sex. And uh, if ever we needed to have a serious look at what the Bible is, has to say about marriage and sexuality, it is now. And uh, this is what I want to say to those of you that are single and saying, oh man, when, when do we get off this marriage thing? Um, I just want to say to you a couple of things. The first thing is that I, I had a single man come to me, young adult, and uh, he said to me, I really appreciate this series, and I'm learning a lot about, uh, about a lot of principles, some of the, because some of the principles, they, they go on both sides of the fence, uh, but we're applying them in uh, marriage. And of course, then there's uh, certain things that are about marriage that are exclusive to singles uh, as well. And, uh, but marriage and sexuality is the hot-button topic in our culture uh, not just here in this uh, locale, not just in this region or nationally, but internationally. And if you, if, if you are a reader, uh, there are books that are coming out now that indicate that, that that's not going, any, uh, going away anytime soon. In fact, it's going to deepen, not, uh, not get better in that sense. Finally, I hope to have one message uh, in the series yet that's addressed specifically to uh, singles. I, I hope to do that yet. And, uh, okay, I got a whoop there. And uh, so uh, maybe I will. Anyway, the last three messages, this is how they've gone. The first one was about the institution of marriage. We talked about, uh, about covenant in particular, though we'll be looking at other aspects of covenant today. Uh, we also talked about, we talked about uh, the decline and the design for marriage there. And we also talked uh, in the second week about the mystery of marriage unveiled, uh, that we're to give ourselves up for the, for the other person as Christ did for, for the church. And by the way, that, that's for singles too. Amen? That's what I mean about the, uh, a bunch of these uh, principles. There's lots of things here for all of us. But anyway... And then uh, last week we talked about the safeguard for marriage. We talked about fear of the Lord, which is for everybody, but in the context of marriage and sexuality, and that's for singles as well as for uh, married people. And uh, this is what I want to encourage you, because it happened over the long weekend and, you know, in summer, and a lot of people are, are, are gone. If you haven't heard any of those three, I don't usually um, promote my messages, but because this is a defining series. This isn't a hearts and arrows kind of marriage series. Uh, it's, a, it's a defining kind of series. You'll hear things that you probably have never heard before. And uh, so you'll want to go back and uh, take, take a look at that. Today we're talking about marriage and sex. Last night I called it the sex act, literally. That was the title of the message. And uh, I toned it down because it was Sunday morning. And... Uh, <laughs> But the message is the same. All right, let's bow for a word of prayer, and away we go. Father, thank you uh, for this time. And we were singing uh, that we are committing our lives, our hearts, our wills, our moments, our everything to you, and we do. And this morning, we commit our marriages and our sexuality to you as well. In Jesus' name, amen. 
First of all, let's uh, start with the essence of marriage. And the essence of marriage is that it is an, uh, you know, like what's the base at it? Like when, when you go to a wedding, like what is the, 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 the base element of it? The essence of it is that it's an inward commitment, but it's expressed in two outward acts, symbolized and expressed in two outward acts. At the very least, marriage requires some rudimentary commitment on the part of each spouse to the other person and to marriage itself. And this commitment must include the willingness of the husband and wife to remain in marriage and to contribute what they can each uh, for the success of it and for the su su success of their life uh, together. This forms the basis of marriage. So the first thing, the base for uh, the baseline for the essence of marriage is what? Commitment. The baseline for uh, marriage is what? That's right. That's the essence of it. It's an inward commitment. But just like baptism is an outward act that symbolizes an inner commitment, so too marriage has two outward acts that symbolize the inner commitment. Very similar in that way to uh, baptism. The first is uh, the covenant or the vows. and we, we talked about that in week number one, but we're going to expand on one of the three elements there. And the three elements were, first of all, that the commitment is, or uh, the commitment made by covenant or vows is made between a man and a woman. The second one was that it's made before community. Many people take issue with that. It, uh, you know, let's, let's just do a Hollywood drive-through and get married. Nuptials kind of thing. It's not. It's before community. Why is this important? Because marriage and sex are actually society's business. Many assume that marriage, and especially sex, is strictly a private matter, so that what I do in my bedroom with another consenting adult is no one else's business. A famous politician many years ago said, the government has no business in the bedrooms of its citizens. But he was completely wrong. And uh, the, the thinking on the surface appears to be broad-minded, but it is actually dangerous thinking. Sex is everybody's business, and here's why. Sex was intended to bind two people together to create the stability that is not only necessary for children to flourish, but is crucial, as a result, for communities to thrive. The most obvious social cost to sex outside marriage is the enormous spread of disease and the burden of children without sufficient parental support. And the less obvious but much greater cost is the exploding number of developmental and psychological problems among children who do not live in stable family environments for most or all of their lives. For good or bad, parents shape another member of the community, and that's why uh, this greatly affects society and why it is society's business. It's the reason why all civilizations throughout history have regulated and, uh, marriage and sexuality using their own norms, and they varied from place to place, but they always regulated it. What's happening in the Western world is a brand new experiment, social experiment, that's never been tried in civilization before. 
and it's dangerous. It turns out that sex is not just your business and my business, it's everybody's business. Um, the second reason for making a commitment before others has to do with something internal. It, uh, the public vow solidifies an inward commitment. So a public declaration of commitment assists the ind individual, the person, the man or the woman, determining whether or not the inward commitment is actually present. And that's why some opt out of marriage just before the day. <laughs> they, they run. There was a movie about that, right? Just like baptism helps a person to move from a tentative faith to a decided walk, so too the public vow assists individuals in determining whether or not the inward commitment is really there. For example, my wife, Fran. Uh, we, we were married on a Saturday, June 23rd in 1973, and on, on the night before, Friday night, I didn't know this. She told me this much later. She lay there and asked herself, what in the world am I doing? Am I really ready to commit myself to this guy for the rest of my life? I mean, if you had seen my picture. <laughs> Do I really know him? And that's the point. It's a, we, you know, the engagement comes and it's all exciting. It's a, you know, and, and, it, and it sounds like there's a real inner commitment. But when you actually get close to that time where you're going to actually say it in front of everybody, it's, you find out that it's actually a tentative commitment. And so the public commitment helps that. The wedding covenant solidifies what is really tentative internal commitment. Just like people who get baptism, quite often I see, or become members in the church, it's like they cross the line and something happens in them. Suddenly they're different and they're serving. And uh, that's the difference. And here's the third part, and we looked at this in week number one, so I'm not going to expand on it, but I'll just mention it. Not only is covenant between two people, a man and a woman, it's covenant before community, church community, the public com uh, community, but it is also overseen and witnessed by God <clears throat> so that he monitors it. He literally monitors it. Uh, to protect other innocents, like spouse and children, from harm. We're talking about the Christian context here, of course. And to hold the marriage together until the glue of mature love sets and cements the relationship. And that's what the covenant is for. But there's a second uh, outward act that symbolizes this inward commitment, and it's one that we are not familiar with in terms of this matter of inward commitment. And it's the sex act itself. We, always talk, we think of it more in terms of the covenant, but it's the sex act itself. That's a second outward act that symbolizes the inward commitment. Genesis chapter 2, it says, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they will become what? One flesh. The sex act is the second outward action that symbolizes the inward commitment. Um, they understood that in ancient times better than we understand that today. The wedding celebrations often continued for days. It wasn't kind of a Saturday afternoon to, uh, you know, Saturday evening kind of, kind of, it wasn't like that at all. It went for days. People would travel a long way. 
And so you'd have your wedding ceremony, and then you would have the consummation of the, of the wedding that night. But the visitors were still there. Not in the tent, but they were there. And that's important to understand because uh, af uh, after the consummation, uh, which was, you know, uh, the, the sex act, when it consummated the marriage, it sealed a contract between two families, and the blood-stained bedsheets were then passed among the guests and set aside for possible future reference, according to Deuteronomy 22. And so it was a second outward act uh, reflecting and symbolizing an inner commitment. And these proved that the bride's father and family had fulfilled their duty to preserve her, the bride's integrity. So marriage has two outward symbols of the inner commitment, the covenant and the sex act. But un unlike the wedding's public covenant, or like baptism, which both just symbolize the inner commitment, the sex act doesn't just symbolize the commitment, it actually reinforces and deepens it each time it happens. That's where it's profoundly different and moves to a completely new level, which leads us to the whole uh, point about the purposes for sex in marriage. The first one is for bonding. The first one is for bonding. And uh, the first mention of sex in the Bible uh, is in Genesis 2.24, and of course we just read it, but I want to read it again because of what it says there. Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they become one flesh. Okay? Now, upon first blush, and that's not intended to be a pun, it would appear to be talking only about sexual union, but while the words don't mean less than that, they certainly mean more. And I'll show you that. We're going to develop this a little bit. When Joel, for example, in, in chapter 2, verse 28, the prophet Joel said that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, he didn't mean that God would give his spirit just to the, and pour it on our physical bodies. He was, he was talking about the whole person, but in this case, he was even talking about all people. Um, flesh in this case, is a figure of speech in which a part of a thing is used to represent the whole. In, uh, in other words, so when I, if I would say, we're going to count all the noses here today. Well, we know that actually we're not trying to count noses. We're trying to count what? The part is representing the whole. And so when he says uh, they become one flesh, that doesn't mean he's just talking about the physical union. It does mean that, but it means more. Uh, Paul also comments on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. He said, Or do you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And he's referring back to the very passage we saw in Genesis 2, 24. Clearly, one flesh means something different to Paul than mere sexual union, or Paul would be reciting a mere what we call, as a figure of speech, tautology. Now, this is what I mean by a tautology. It is the needless repetition of an idea. And I, I put it up on the screen uh, for you this morning. In effect, let's look back at this, uh, at this verse where he talks about one body, one flesh. 
In effect, Paul would be saying, don't you know that when you are having sex, uh, a physical union with a prostitute, you are having a physical union with a prostitute? Do you see what I mean by that? It's a tautology. And uh, it's the needless repetition of an idea. Needless. So he's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying more than that. Paul says the oneness that you're having in the physical act is making you one throughout. It goes deeper than just the physical act. Now we'll explore this even a little further. I want this to become really crystal clear because of some of the things we're going to say. The Bible views human beings as, uh, as whole body, soul, and spirit. That's why Zechariah 12, 1, it says that God put spirit in man. But it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole, what? Spirit and? And? Be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's one. We are a tripart being that is composed of three components, but we're one. You can't separate them. The one affects the other. They interrelate. They're interconnected. So when the Bible says that the two will become one flesh, it is not just referring to the physical aspect of the two persons. It does include that, but it's much more. They are being united physically, emotionally, psychologically, and the sex act engages the whole personality. So Paul is saying that sex with a prostitute, and of course by application we would say any sex outside marriage, is wrong because every sex act is supposed to be a uniting act. I'm going to give you an example so that you can really grab this thing. Let's talk about emotional bonding because, you know, it could be psychological or emotional, physical. Uh, let's talk about emotional bonding as an example. Sex makes a person feel deeply connected to the other person. Unless through practice you numb the original impulse, sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to the other as you are literally joined physically. In the midst of sexual passion, for example, you, you naturally want to say extravagant things such as, I'll always love you. Wait a minute, you're having, there's a, a physical act taking place, but emotionally you are being moved. So that you want to say those kinds of extravagant things, and the way you say those extravagant things actually demonstrate that a oneness is taking place. A uniting is taking place at a deeper level than just a physical level. Even if you're not legally married, you may find yourself very quickly feeling marriage-like ties, feeling that the other person has obligations to you. But that person has no legal or social or moral responsibility even to call you back in the morning. This leads to jealousy, obsessiveness, hurt feelings, if uh, two are having sex but not married. But Paul not only said that when, so, so you understand, you, you get just a little better picture of the bonding that's taking place in a sexual union. But Paul not only said that when you have sex with a prostitute out of marriage that you would bond at the deepest levels, he went on to say something else that was very 
profound. He said it does something to you when you have sex outside of marriage. He said in verse 18, he said, flee, and, and listen to this verse very carefully now. There's a lot of Christians, Christians, who don't believe this verse. Seriously. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What is Paul saying? People say that sexual sins are just like any other sins. You know, some people overeat and I just oversex. Wrong. They are not on the same level. Much like, for example, if, I, if, 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 you, if you go on the highway and you go 10 kilometers over the speed limit, or let's say 15 kilometers over the, whole, uh, the speed limit, and you get a ticket, you've broken the law. You sinned in that sense. But it is not an equal sin to going and committing rape or murder. Would you agree with that? That's why we have degrees of punishment. God has the same thing. If you look in the Word, the sin is not sin in the Bible. It is not equal. They all have to be atoned for, yes. But they are not equal in, da in the damage they do. So never equate overeating and sexual immorality. The two are not even close to being on the same, same plane. And I'm going to demonstrate it now. <clears throat> Paul is clear that all other sins, according to this verse, are committed, uh, that are committed do not impact the person to the depth and degree that sexual sins do. Some argue that Paul is talking here, well, he's just talking about the body. See, look, it says, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. See? And overeating is against the body. But wait a minute, it can't be meaning that because he said all other sins are not being com uh, committed against the body. So it can't mean just the physical body. Again, we're back to this uh, figure of speech, the synecdoche, which uh, where, where a part becomes an expression for the whole. And he's talking about the whole person. And sexual immorality damages the whole person in a way that no other sin does. Because it gets you at the emotional and psychological levels. And that's what we're going to be talking about. And, uh, and I want to give you, and, and, and by the way, it does it at a level that no overeating does. I want to give you an example um, uh, that I thought of. Let's say... You take two pieces of plywood, and you take super glue. Nowadays, the super glues are just amazing. And you glue them together, you clamp it together, and you let it dry, and you let it set. And now you try to pry the thing to, uh, apart. You can't, number one, pry it apart with your hands. So you try, you take some tools or something, and you try to break it apart. You try to pull it apart. But when you try to pull it apart, it actually begins to break apart, but it doesn't break where the glue is. When you get pull it apart, I don't know if you've ever seen that. I have. Some of the pieces from wood A, let's say, end up being permanently glued and stay with 
part, uh, you know, would be, and part of the pieces of B end up remaining on part A. D does that make sense? Yes. Have you seen that? Yes. That's exactly what Paul's getting at. When you become one physically, in this case he was talking about a prostitute, but it can be anybody, any, you know, some fling or whatever you're doing, extramarital affair, whatever, with somebody else, when you pull back on that thing, a piece of you remains with that person and a piece of that person remains with you. So that when you go back to your marriage bed or when you now enter into marriage, there's not two of you in the bed, there's at least three of you now in the bed. Do you see what I'm saying? Psychologically and emotionally. And you can't get rid of it that easy. I used this illustration last night, and a woman said to me, what you said is exactly the way it is. She was talking experientially. That's what happens. Young people, I'm, I'm imploring you. Don't buy into the lie that this is, this is the same as overeating. It isn't. And if you, if you overstep the boundaries here, you are, you are inviting huge trouble into your life that will take you probably years to clean up for a few moments. All right. So marriage is a union of male and female so profound that they virtually become essentially a new single person or unit. And that's why God made bonding in the first place, so that it would work. He wanted it to be super glue. <laughs> so you better not use the super glue on the wrong things. Amen. Second, a purpose for sex and marriage is for renewing the marriage. In the Old Testament, there were often covenantal renewal ceremonies and when God entered into a covenant relationship with his people, he directed that periodically there be an opportunity to have them remember the terms of the covenant by reading it together and then recommitting to it. These were times of great celebration, and it's the same with the marriage covenant. When you get married, you make a solemn co covenant with your spouse, and that's a great day and your hearts are full. Is that true? Have any of you experienced that? Oh, and some people think it's all downhill after that. It's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be uphill after that. Uh, with a covenant renewal. Uh, but because of time, uh, you know, as time moves on, drudgery sets in, pressures come in, problems, busyness get in the way, and the bond just isn't as strong as it used to be. There's a need to rekindle the heart and renew the commitment. There must be an opportunity to recall all that the other person means to you and to give yourself anew. Sex between a husband and a wife is the unique way that God created to do just that. That's amazing. In fact, God not only allows sex within marriage, he strongly commands it. People say, oh, you know, Christians, they, 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 just, don't, they just don't believe in sex. <laughs> 
They have no clue what they're talking about. 1 Corinthians 7 says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. That's a nice euphemism. And likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. So far, so good. All of his, mankind's history has believed that. The woman's body belongs to the man. But now Paul says the most incredibly radical thing. Likewise, husbands, you'll want to memorize this one. And wives, go ahead, jab them now. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. Remember what we talked about? Ephesians 5, mutual submission. But the wife does. The wife has authority over it. Do not deprive one another. That's an imperative command. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. Uh, he said, except perhaps. <laughs> then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. God made sex to be pleasurable. You know why? Because God, not man, invented pleasure. The, the world didn't come up with this idea. God made the man and the woman. Their physical anatomy is structured such that it can be pleasurable. God invented it because he is pleasurable. In fact, it says in his, in his presence, there's, at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. God is, it's a reflection of who God is. Like, listen to this. <laughs> wow. Proverbs 5. Let your fountain be blessed. That's quite a euphemism. And rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And the book of Sol Song of Solomon? Oh my goodness. <laughs> it does much barefaced rejoicing in the delights of sexual or erotic love and marriage. You know, some dear, wonderful Christians have tried to allegorize that whole thing and turn it into a love song between... Jesus and us. It's not. It's about marriage. And the role of the woman throughout the book is truly astounding, especially in light of the book's, uh, book's ancient origins. In this case, she is the one seeking and pursuing and initiating. The Bible is actually a very uncomfortable book for the prudish. Sex is the most powerful, God-created way to help give your entire self to the other person again and again, and again. Sex is God's appointed way of saying to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less than that. And as marriage is necessary for sex, is, uh, sex is also necessary for the maintenance of the covenant. Paul is telling married Christians that mutually satisfying sexual relationships must be an important part of their life together. In fact, the passage is saying that sex should be regular, often. Is that what he's saying? The only reason for holding back was if they mutually agreed not to engage in sex for the sake of prayer, but then only for a short time. And so one spouse was not allowed to deny sex to the other. Now, 
Someone here is thinking, underneath their breath they're muttering, I don't like to have sex. This is what I want to say to you. It's not about you. You entered a marriage that was uh, a commitment between you and your spouse, made before others, witnessed and overseen by God, monitored by God. And Scripture tells us we're to submit one to another. And he's talking specifically about marriage there. And Paul makes it clear that it's also supposed to be in, in, uh, in the area of sexual expression. The sex act is a physical, visible expression of mutual submission. The wife to the husband, the husband to the wife. It symbolizes in a vivid manner the desire of each of the partners to give freely and completely for the sake of fulfilling the other. It pictures what it uh, is to be true of the, of the marriage relationship as a whole, this mutual submission. And the need for or desire for that may swing from one spouse to another over the course of a marriage, but both are commanded to submit to the other. Each is to uh, be concerned about giving, not getting. That's the Christian way. That's not the cultural way. But it is the Christian way. It's the biblical way you give before you get. And the pleasure comes from the giving. And then the getting is a side benefit and bonus. In short, the greatest sexual pleasure should be the pleasure of seeing your spouse getting pleasure. And if couples would approach sex from the biblical angle, an attitude of giving rather than receiving, listen to this very carefully now, most sexual dysfunctions would disappear. If your main purpose in sex is giving rather than receiving, then a person who doesn't have as much sex drive can give it to the other person as a gift. This is a legitimate act of love, agape kind of love. This is so radical what I'm saying now and contrary to our culture's emphasis on self-gratification. But it is Jesus' way. Then there's a third uh, reason for sex uh, or purpose in marriage. One was bonding, one is renewing the covenant, and one is uh, the marriage covenant, and one is for uh, childbearing and rearing. But this will, will surprise you maybe a little bit what I'm going to say. To elevate childbearing as the central meaning of the sex act actually truncates and damages the meaning of marriage. Procreation is actually a small, though significant, part of sex in marriage. And as we've already seen, uh, sexual activity within marriage has other equally significant meanings, like the bonding and renewing and enjoying and so on. And in a few moments, we'll also note how marriage, uh, together uh, with the sexual act, pictures some spiritual realities. In truth, these other purposes from the, form the context for childbearing and procreation. Otherwise, we're in danger of reintroducing asceticism, which the Bible, as we saw, does not promote. And uh, we already saw that Paul warned against uh, that. So procreation, therefore, childbearing, is an important dimension of, of marital sexual relations, but it certainly is neither the only nor the central dimension.
All right, now we go to the fourth and final one. And that's for picturing marriage, uh, sex, you know, purpose of sex and marriage, and marriage as a whole, pictures spiritual realities. We're talking about marriage and sexuality. When we begin to fathom how God designed marriage and sexuality, we get closer to understanding the primary meanings of sex in, and marriage. The divine intent is that it functions as a picture of great spiritual realities. First of all, it's a reflection of the union of, three per, of the three persons in the Godhead in eternity past. That's why it says in Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 27, that God said, let us, notice that, make man in our image, you, you hear the plurality there, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. There's some things that we notice from this. This is a picture the, the marriage is to reflect, the marriage of a man and a woman is to reflect who God is. That's the first uh, reflection or picture that it is. Notice we have our first hint of plurality, the us and the our. This is later revealed explicitly as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The male contains aspects of the image of God. The female contains aspects of the image of God. And that's why many passages of Scripture talk about God using male terminology, while other passages refer to female attributes. And so everyone here today, whether you're married or single, you reflect attributes of who God is. You are made in the image of God, and you reflect Him. So be careful how you reflect Him. However, in marriage, this moves one step further in that marriage itself reflects the way the different uh, persons of the Trinity relate towards one another. Because though the members of the Trinity are equal, they are different. And in the same way, a man and a woman, they're the same in one sense, but they're different. And they become one, and they reflect the Trinity. And how the Trinity, in its, in its differences, acts and relates towards one another. Jesus prayed for us that we'd be uh, one, because they, they are essentially one. They're different, but they're one. They're united. Jesus prayed that we would be one, as the Trinity is one. And that shows us how we are to be one in our marriages. And then as we become one in... Uh, one in our marriages, or unified, we get an experiential taste of what God is like, and then we and our children want more of that. We reflect it, we, we, we read about it, then we begin to act like that, and in acting like that, we experience a little bit of what that's like, and we are experiencing, not just reading about, but we're experiencing what God's like, just a taste of it, just a hint of it, and we want more of him. And the same goes true of other aspects or characteristics uh, or attributes of God. We discovered that the persons of Godhead are loving, joyful, respectful, inclusive, not inclusive of sin, and those who want to, uh, God's very exclusive in that way, and, and they're committed to each other, but he wants more in his family, 
And so as we form a marriage and we start to, we look at what he's like and we do the same thing, we begin to reflect that and we experience it and those around us experience it and they want more of it. That's why I say that if you, the best gift that you can give to your, your children, number one, without a question, is a wonderful relationship with Jesus Christ. Second gift, most important gift you can give them, is a great marriage. Because it's in a great marriage where they will taste some of that. They will see it modeled, what is said here, and they'll taste it a little bit. They'll want that, the God that's behind that. Does that make sense? Number two, it's not just a reflection of the union of three persons in the Godhead from eternity past, but it's a reflection of Christ's union with the church in the present. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church, and we talked about this uh, passage two weeks ago. Um, but a, a good marriage, uh, a Christian marriage, is supposed to reflect... The union of Christ and his church. And the picture that this gives is not of who God is. That's the picture. The, uh, that's one picture. That's who God is, the Trinity. This one reflects how God, what God's attitudes and thoughts and behaviors are towards you. He gives himself up for you. And a... Christian marriage is supposed to reflect what God's deepest thoughts, what he's thinking about you, how, what his attitude is toward you, the, the, the actions that he wants to make towards you, the overtures towards you. And a Christian marriage is supposed to reflect that. And when the Christian marriage reflects that, then what happens is, again, you begin to experience just a little bit of what God is like. And it begins to affect everybody around. And uh, so that's a, that's a very important one. And finally, the reflection of God's union with mankind in the fu uh, future. Revelation 21, verses 2 to 3, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Now listen to this. Revelation 19, verse 7, he said, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. God promises, it's a picture of God unveiled and fully present with us one day face to face, on a new earth, a restored, renewed earth. That's a promise. Right now we see him darkly, dimly veiled, like he's clothed. Reminds you of marriage. He becomes unveiled, and we see him fully as he is. A little like what Grandpa McAllister is experiencing right now. Amen. Amen? Yeah. And that's a promise. And as a husband and wife maintain the bond of fidelity to one another, they picture the fellowship of redeemed humanity with the Creator, and that is why, 
why God is so particular about your attitudes and behaviors within marriage and sexuality. He doesn't want you to break the picture. We exist for him, not the other way around. God does not exist for us. Can, can, can we just get that straight? We exist for him, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. We belong to him. We were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's what it says. And he says, don't break the picture. Sex is a wonderful but powerful force, like water and fire. It can be very good when used as intended, but when it overflows its banks, it becomes a destructive force, which is why God sanctified marriage and sex. You say, what do you mean by sanctified? That means he set fences, perimeters, boundaries around it so that it wouldn't get outside of its intended use, where, it, where the very power that it exerts in its rightful place now becomes a destructive force for bad. And as his image bearer, he wants you and I to reflect the way things really are. And when we do it his way, we come to understand and experience a bit of who he is, how he thinks and acts towards us, and what he promises for those of us who love him back. Here's my final question for you. Do you trust him today? Uh, do you trust him with your eternity, your salvation? Let me ask you something. Do you, in, do you trust him with your marriage? And lastly, do you trust him with your sexuality? Or do you think that in every other area he could be trusted, but in the area of sexuality, that's where he got it wrong? Because that's what the world is telling us, that if there is a God, he got it wrong. I, for one, am here to tell you, he got it right. Amen. He knows what he's doing. Amen. And if you are operating outside the parameters or the boundaries of the way he designed it, I want to lovingly warn you that you're playing with fire that could affect you for the remainder of your life here on earth. You say, oh, God can forgive and all that. Yeah, we're going to talk about that next week. We will. But what else I'm going to say with it is going to surprise you, may surprise some of you. So let's commit ourselves to God's way. Amen, church? We will not experience renewal and revival in this church or across this country until sexuality is dealt with. And I'll say more about that next week because of what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in that same passage about Jesus being united to a prostitute. So be back. <laughs> Lord Jesus, right now we commit ourselves, our body, soul, and mind 
and our spirits to you. And we say to you, we trust you. Lord, if there are those that are outside the boundaries right now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them and give them no rest. No rest whatsoever until they repent. Not because you're mean, but exactly because you love them. And you want to keep them from hurting themselves and others. And because you want them to stand uh, with confidence before the judgment seat of Christ. And hear those words, well done. Cause us to be a church that is pure and holy, sanctified, set apart for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.